Good evening and uh, welcome to you all here for a rather remarkable event, I think, a broad discussion of present and future security challenges in a context now which couldn't be more lively, serious, and, and with elements, of course, of controversy. Um, in these turbulent times, of course, and given what has happened in Tunisia, Egypt, and right across the Middle East, and now notably in Libya, it gives me, of course, great pleasure to welcome Admiral Sir Mark Stanhope here this evening. He is, of course, the first Sea Lord and Chief of Naval Staff. In his role as professional head of the Royal Navy, he is, of course, in a unique position to explore these themes here uh, this evening. He has served uh, with the Royal Navy since 1970 uh, in a remarkable career, which has included command of submarines and surface ships, as well as broad experience in Whitehall and in the NATO uh, alliance. He's been operational across operational patrols across many areas, including the Gulf and off Sierra Leone. This evening, he will discuss the themes set out here, security, present, and future challenges, and he'll seek to provide an account of the increasing deep interconnectedness between global and national security as a feature of the world in which we now live. After Sir Mark has spoken, Professor Mary Caldor will respond. Mary Caldor is, of course, co-director of LSE Global Governance and a professor here and has worked for many decades, three at least, on, or if not more, on security issues uh, uh, in their variety of different dimensions. I think it is fair to say and accurate to say she is a pioneer in rethinking the dominant security paradigm based on interstate interests and interstate warfare and issues of peace and security among states and has sought to offer a new account of security which puts the protection of human beings, human rights and the political process at its heart. So here we have two people coming from, as it were, different, of course, professional intellectual orientations, but meet around a set of common interests, which is how one deepens their sense of security in the world that we live in, and what it takes to do that politically and through the political process, as well as sometimes using a combination of soft and hard power. So please uh, join with me in giving Samark a, a very warm welcome. David, thank you very much indeed for that introduction. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, uh, I really am delighted to have been invited uh, by David and Mary uh, on behalf of the uh, London School of Economics Global Governance to contribute to this discussion on present and future security challenges. Now, Budget Day and operations in Libya certainly weren't on our minds when we set this date some six months ago. Um, but occasions like this um, are particularly timely in the light of recent ongoing international events and they will provide, I think, or this will provide an important opportunity to both think afresh about the nature of the security challenges we face and to debate our responses to them. I would like to begin, though, by paying tribute to the bravery and professionalism of what the British Armed Forces have accomplished and are achieving in support of UN Resolution 1973, established to protect civilians from attack by the Gaddafi regime. From their initial extraction 
of British nationals a few weeks ago to the effective establishment of a no-fly zone over Libya now, the armed forces, and especially in these particular circumstances, the Royal Navy and the Royal Air Force, have, as I hope you would expect, acted with appropriate restraint and, at times, significant courage. For the Royal Navy, the submarine HMS Triumph has successfully played a role in the delivery of precision strike with Tomahawk cruise missiles to write down Gaddafi's air defence systems. A perfect illustration, I might add, of the flexibility of submarine forces. Indeed, the recent events in Libya are a good example of our need to be able to respond flexibly to a dynamic security environment. In this sense, tonight's title, Present and Future Security Challenges, is particularly apposite. As such, I shall return to Libya shortly, and I'm pretty certain uh, I'll be returning to it in your questions. This evening, I want to consider how the United Kingdom secures its strategic interests in a rapidly evolving global environment. In doing so, I will make the point that flexibility of mind and flexibility of method need to be central to the United Kingdom's approach to responding to the future security challenges of our modern world. So what does our security environment really look like? Well, there's no doubt that it's a dynamic one, as in many ways it always has been. One only has to look back to when the Cold War, with its veneer of simplicity, dominated a more bipolar security environment, to see the extent to which the security environment has been transformed into an ever more complex one. Why? In large part because, as this audience will recognise only too well, the conveyor belts of globalisation are, in all their forms, accelerating us closer and closer together. Today, we are connected globally in many, many different ways. In the year 2000, just 12% of the world's population possessed a mobile phone. UN figures tell us that technological innovation has boosted this figure to more than 60%. In 1995, there were 16 million web users globally. Today, it's more than 1.7 billion. Integration of economies across the world is increasing too, of course. The UN estimates that in 1990, the total amount of global investment overseas was $2 trillion. In 2008, that figure has risen to around $18, million, $18 trillion. Just as there are fiscal imperatives to build closer ties with more economic powers, so globally there is a requirement to build more bridges as power becomes distributed more widely as the circle of international decision-making becomes more multilateral. Indeed, the international architecture is already responding to an increasingly multipolar world. The G8 has been replaced by the G20 as the main form of international economic cooperation. NATO has increased 
to 28 members, and the EU now consists of 27 countries. Viewed collectively, these examples alone mean that events in one region or country are inevitably having increasingly profound effects elsewhere in the world. So, if the last 30 years really are anything to go by, it follows that the next 30 years will, propelled by continuous globalization, be characterized by rapid change and increased global interdependency. Analysts and commentators are quick to remind us of other factors that do and will continue to shape the future security environment. The UN predicts that the world's population will increase from the current 6.9 billion to about 9.2 billion by the year 2050. And that by the year 2030, population increase will mean that global demands for food and energy will rise by up to 50% and water by up to 30%. These are staggering figures, uh, 50 and 30% across a population of then 9.2 uh, uh, billion. But it's not just resource scarcity that is likely to increase the prospects of conflict. The consequences of climate change, from which none of us are immune, are likely to have a disproportionate impact on the developing world, adding further stresses to already fragile states in particular. But it is not just these states that present challenges to security and global governance. The same might also hold true, of course, for the more powerful nations. And the non-state actor, perhaps while wearing the trappings of statehood, will also become an increasingly influential player. So when viewed from many angles, the global security environment is, and will remain, a dynamic one. One that is complex. One that is multi-dimensional. Recognising this, the United Kingdom's recently written national security strategy concludes that the risk is likely to become increasingly diverse. I think events of the last three months underpin that. Perhaps none of this would matter if we were in a position to declare a Monroe Doctrine of our own. Withdrawing from the world and doggedly defending our borders while policing our home waters, airspace and cyberspace. Some have suggested indeed that this is an approach we should adopt, but it overlooks the strategic realities for the United Kingdom. The United Kingdom is and has long been an outward-looking democratic country, one which trades globally and which relies on an international rule-based system to ensure the stability upon which our security and indeed our prosperity depend. We leverage influence through membership of multinational bodies. I've mentioned some already, the United Nations, the G20, the EU and NATO. We have a global perspective matched by international responsibilities. Consequently, we are interdependent and interconnected, and in the words of the Foreign Secretary, live in a networked world. Another reality is too often overlooked, and that is that the United Kingdom is an island. 
We are also responsible for the security of 14 overseas territories, all of which, with the exception of the peninsula of Gibraltar, are islands too. Being an island, of course, brings enormous benefits in security terms, but it also brings particular vulnerabilities. According to the Chamber of Shipping, 95% of UK trade by volume and 90% by value is carried by the sea. We cannot feed ourselves, so we import much of the food we consume. Figures from the Department of Energy and Climate Change tell us that the UK became a net importer of energy in 2004, and this dependency, ladies and gentlemen, I think we would all agree, is very unlikely to change. We live in a just-enough, just-in-time economy, one in which many goods, raw materials and other commodities are warehoused at sea in bulk and container ships. We are already hugely dependent on the free movement of maritime traffic, a dependency that the change of shipping envisages, envisages will only increase. If that flow of material is interrupted, there are implications across the board and they are increasingly strategic. This is why the National Security Strategy assesses that a short to medium term, short to medium term disruption to international supplies of resources essential to the UK is a significant priority risk. Given all these factors, I would contend that the UK has little choice but to engage in the increasingly globalised world if we are to maintain our prosperity and, most importantly, our way of life. But that engagement, as it always has done, brings risk and reward in equal measure. Indeed, our own financial institutions stand testimony to that reality. The risks may manifest, the risks may manifest themselves directly. Terrorist attacks in our cities, pandemics, extreme weather, cyber attacks on our national infrastructure, even direct military threats to our overseas territories or to the UK's or to UK nationals living abroad. They may manifest themselves indirectly, perhaps as the consequence of conflict elsewhere or as a second-order effect of direct threats to others. For example, UK nationals caught up in conflicts abroad, interruptions to our energy supplies, the deliberate degradation of our environment, the denial of legitimate access to trade routes or resources, and so on and so on. However much we regret it, and however much we would prefer to conceptualise it, conflict is likely to remain a feature of the security environment. As Leon Trotsky put it, you may not be interested in war, but war is interested in you. We can deliberate the relative likelihood of these things coming to pass, just as we can assess their likely impact. However, I hope we can all agree that they do have the potential to affect our security and, because security underpins the global trade and commodity prices upon which our economy depends, to affect our everyday life. Most particularly, they have the potential to impact on our security interests, the security of our people, our economic well-being, our freedoms and our values. In sum, the things we take for granted. 
While some of these security challenges I've spoken of have always been with us in one form or another, I would suggest that what is new is the speed at which they combine to engage our national interests. That can manifest itself in ways we might not expect because it doesn't necessarily sit within our familiar frames of reference. Take recent events in the Maghreb and the Levant as an example. It is said that the riots in, Tun in Tunisia began when an unemployed graduate set himself on fire after police confiscated his fruit stall in the small town of Sidi Basid. When he died of his injuries, local demonstrations morphed into national demonstrations, such that the, such that the Tunisian government was ultimately deposed. That led to demonstrations and civil unrest in Cairo, which fed fears that the Suez Canal could be shut. In response, oil prices, just as they've done in the past, rose on this occasion to $120 a barrel. But just try and imagine the economic consequences, to say nothing of the wider regional implications, were events in Libya to deteriorate even further than they have at the moment, or additional political stresses arise in Egypt, let alone in Bahrain. It is worth reflecting too on just how quickly and widespread demonstrations have reverberated around the Arab world. Tunisia, Egypt, Saudi Arabia, Bahrain, Algeria, Jordan, Yemen, Albania, Syria, Lebanon, and of course Libya. The implications of a young Tunisian not having the correct paperwork to run a fruit store were not foreseen, but they are no less real for that. They illustrate how quickly events can unfold in a way that is difficult to predict and which can affect UK interests in the short term, in this case, by posing a threat to our energy security and the safety of UK nationals living, working and holidaying in the region, and potentially in the long term too. Whereas in Libya, simply impacting on our high standards for the protection of human rights against an unacceptable, brutal, oppressive dictator. Given all that, the principal challenge for the United Kingdom is to secure our strategic interests in a global environment that is not just increasingly complex, but one that is characterized by rapid and often unpredictable change. Indeed, the recent events in the Maghreb, and Libya in particular, serve as a timely reminder for the United Kingdom government, and I might even say for the LSE, that the, that the capacity of world events to surprise even the best prepared of us should not be underestimated. For those of us with responsibility for delivering defence and security, getting to grips with the security environment is a prerequisite to ensuring the range of outcomes needed to support UK policy and protect UK interests. So how should we address these challenges? It's a question which, prompted by the Strategic Defence and Security View, has been much aired of late. Indeed, I suspect that in Whitehall it has generated more thought in the last 12 months than in the preceding 12 years. Throughout my own substantially longer naval career, I've experienced firsthand the range of security challenges associated with this shifting strategic environment.
and have often been involved in shaping the responses to them. As a submarine commander in the 1980s, for example, my role was dictated by the realities of the Cold War and the deterrent strategy that underpinned it. In the 1990s, warship command in HMS Illustrious exposed to me the practicalities of military interventionism, which reached its apogee in the year 2000 with the UK's intervention in Sierra Leone. HMS Illustrious was, along with our amphibious task group and contributions from our sister services, instrumental in changing the situation on the ground to create a pause in fighting. The elected Sierra Leone government, under attack from the Revolutionary United Front, was thereby preserved and we were able to help set the security conditions which allowed the UN to continue its mandate. The UK's standing was enhanced, significantly enhanced as a result, and this allowed the expectation to flourish in some quarters that military precision, precise, limited and supported by a clear mandate could be a panacea to any number of further ills. But past operational success is no guarantee of future performance. Indeed, events since then have served to remind us of the limits of military force alone in achieving security outcomes, not least in respect of enduring stabilisation campaigns. So what has this Admiral got to say now about how the UK should address the security challenges of today and tomorrow? Whatever the political rhetoric of the past, this country has neither the capacity nor the political appetite to respond to every conceivable threat. No country, frankly, has. But that is not to say that we shouldn't try and improve our capacity to do so as far as is possible. A more imaginative, proactive stance on security should be within our means, provided we are prepared to look again at how we deliver it. This requires us to do two things, to become more flexible in mind and to become more flexible in method. Let me explain. Flexibility in mind, in our thinking, is the vital precondition to achieving a more realistic response to the speed and unpredictability of events which characterise the security environment of our modern world. For example, whilst the whole of government approach to the production of the National Security Strategy published last October is a welcome restatement of the strategic principles, and whilst the establishment of a National Security Council to provide prompt coherent and coordinated decision-making on all aspects of national security is a positive step, we need to continue to build on this. If we are to truly balance resources with commitments, power with interests, I believe that we should be more prepared to employ all the levers of national power, diplomatic, economic and military, in addressing the security challenges will undoubtedly face. If consensus can be achieved, to join with others also, state and non-state. Why? Because as commentators such as Joseph Nye observe, whilst military power will always have its place, the networked world potentially allows us to achieve outcomes through more subtle use of all the levers of national power.
Whilst this is increasingly well understood, I think that we should, given the network context in which I referred earlier, be aiming to go still further. As the author Parang Kahana suggests, when government, business and NGOs work together, real progress can be made. For the network world has the potential to truly galvanise .gov, .com and .org into generating a more dynamic and innovative response to future security case crises. The need for smarter interagency planning and delivery, be it humanitarian aid or law enforcement, for example, whether national or as part of an international effort, is the consequence of a growing shift towards thinking in much broader terms about what security means and how it can best be delivered. The introduction of the comprehensive approach a few years ago, in my view, is definitely worth reinvigorating. To summarise, flexibility in mind means we need to consider the levers of power and other actors as an individual melodic lines weaved into a complex counterpoint where the interplay between the lines is fused into a harmonious whole. Whilst history has yet to determine its verdict, I would suggest that to date the UK's response to recent events in the Middle East, for example, stands testament to an emerging maturity of approach to more intelligently fused, fusing these lines. This brings me to my second point. We need to achieve flexibility in method. Uh, we need to consider more imaginative uh, fusion of both soft and hard power to achieve the desired outcomes and effects we desire. There's a tendency to understand the U United Kingdom's armed forces activity only in terms of their engagement in conflict. I think that this is inevitable uh, and is a consequence of the focus on the campaigns in Iraq and Afghanistan. But the range of operations undertaken by the component elements of the armed forces is actually much, much wider than this. There's also a tendency to view the deployment of the military as the last resort. But I think that the military can be part of a more nuanced first resort, both in better understanding the security situation and in doing something to contain it. I think the defence can do more in the coming years to shape our armed forces so that, that they can be used more effectively to help address security risks early on as part of our commitment to conflict prevention, upstream engagement to prevent conflict. In this regard, the role of deterrence, and by that I mean both conventional and nuclear, is of utmost importance. The value of persistent presence in regions of interest whether to signal national intent, gather intelligence and form insights, contribute to capacity building, or to reassure others, cannot be underestimated. The need, therefore, to maintain a credible warfighting capability able to operate and be maintained at range is crucial. Why? Because you cannot deter effectively unless it is understood by those whose behaviour you seek to influence that you can intervene militarily with confidence. Because you cannot keep the peace 
unless you are physically there and prepared to be able to stay there. To aid your understanding of how the armed forces can, and in my view you should, be optimised to deliver security outcomes, allow me to illustrate the broader strategic effect of how the military can be used differently to deliver security. You may not know that the Royal Navy has been operating in the Arabian Gulf, ashore, afloat, in the skies and beneath the waters since 1979. During the tanker war of the mid-1980s, we were there providing escort protection to tankers laden with oil through the Straits of Hormoz while the Iran-Iraq war was being raged around us. We were still there for the first Gulf War in 1991 when our ships and aircraft rapidly defeated the Iraqi Navy. We stayed to enforce the UN's economic sanctions against Saddam Hussein's regime before supplying and landing the amphibious force that took control of the Al Four Peninsula, the gateway to Basra, in 2003. And while you will perhaps have heard about the drawdown of the United Kingdom armed forces from Iraq in 2009, the Royal Navy has remained there, clearing mines, continuing operations to protect the vital offshore energy infrastructures, and de uh, deterring the illegal and damaging smuggling of weapons and drugs in the region, as well as counter-piracy. While we're at it, we have continued to devote resources to passing on our experience in training the fledgling Iraqi Navy and Marines, as well as facilitating detente between Iraq and Kuwait. Consider how things might have developed had we not, over the last 30 years, been in a position to shape and influence events in the Gulf, to deter, contain, and ultimately engage in decisive combat operations against our foes while supporting our friends, all in order to assist the delivery of UK's national interests. The fact of our being there and our wider utility gave the United Kingdom choice in peacetime and options in crisis. It continues to do so. Consider these other examples, the operations to evacuate British nationals by sea from Lebanon during the Israeli Hezbollah conflict in 2006, and only a few weeks ago from Benghazi in Libya. The response to the Haiti earthquake at the beginning of last year, the ongoing counter-piracy mission in the Indian Ocean and off the coast of Somalia, the interception of drugs bound for Brit Britain's streets in the Caribbean Sea and Atlantic, the protection of our fish stocks and the conventional defence of the South African and South Atlantic islands and their associated resources. All of these are examples of forces being used flexibly, not fighting wars, but being there doing their business. Uh, and they're all there in order that defence contributes in harmonious counterpoint with all the levers of national power and other actors to delivering security for the United Kingdom. All examples of more elaborate application of both soft and hard power. Whilst I think there is room for more simultaneous activity, genuine flexibility depends on being organised and equipped to offer continuing policy choices to the government at all stages of engagement with others. So for defence, that means we need flexible forces, 
able between them to operate successfully across the full range of tasks that might be demanded of them today and tomorrow. Everything from delivering humanitarian relief to winning wars. Flexible forces offer real choices to government in deciding how to respond to developing situations, but can also provide continuing influence to prevent crisis from flaring up in the first place. I've already underlined the importance of deterrence in the broadest sense, but of course this also means maintaining the nuclear deterrent. Whilst the strategic nuclear threat to this country is presently assessed as low, we cannot, as the Strategic Defence and Security Review acknowledges, and I quote, dismiss the possibility that a major direct nuclear threat to the UK might re-emerge, end of quote. Who is to say what the position will be in 20 years' time? Recognising this, the government remains committed to maintaining the nuclear deterrent in order to underpin the security of the UK and support collective security through NATO. And if we want to be truly flexible, it also means that whilst the government understands the risk of taking a gap in carrier strike capability in the near term, the arguments for carrier-borne aviation remain entirely sound for the uncertain world that we expect to face in the future. This is why the government also remains committed to the future carrier strike programme. To conclude, introducing greater flexibility in our thinking is the first step to truly galvanising .gov, .com and .org in generating a more dynamic response to future security crises. For defence, introducing greater flexibility to our forces, their capabilities and structures is a sensible response to the speed and unpredictability which characterises the security environment of not just today but tomorrow. Flexibility in mind, flexibility in method. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much indeed for your attention. Well, many thanks for a far-ranging uh, uh, introduction to these very big issues, and I now welcome Mary Caldor, who will respond. Well, thank you very much for your introduction. I very much agree with what you say about globalization and your emphasis on flexibility uh, and on a whole-of-government approach and on the need to react to new risks like piracy or mine clearance or long-distance force projection for humanitarian intervention. Um, I'm not actually sure how new these risks are. Some of them really are new, but others are ones we take seriously either because we're more, more aware of what goes on in different parts of the world. We find it unacceptable to see uh, people attacking their own citizens, for example, in a way that we might not have even been aware of before. Or, in fact, because many of these risks were somehow under the radar of the Cold War before. That during the Cold War period, we thought a world war was the worst possible imaginable scenario, and any lesser risks were not considered security risks in the same way. And now that the Cold War is gone, we can be more concerned about these other types of risks. 
So on all that, I'm, I'm in agreement. But where I'm skeptical is whether we can afford to do everything. In particular, can we afford to maintain advanced military capabilities needed for deterrence on a Cold War model, um, and at the same time, develop capabilities which would contribute uh, to global efforts to address the new risk. I think we're in a major moment of transition when we really need to be able to create new security capabilities on a new model. And in a way, I think what's happening in Libya illustrates the problem, and I, I will come back to this at the end. But I think the only, you know, I think the aim of Libya was a new aim, protection of civilians, but the only means we had available were very traditional, airstrikes. And I'll come back to that later. What I would like to see in terms, I mean, the approach I use in terms of thinking about new security capabilities is I use the term human security. Um, and what I mean by human security is three things. I mean, first I'm talking about the security of individuals and the communities in which they live as opposed to the defense of borders uh, or at the... Um, possible war against collective enemies. Secondly, I mean that when we talk about insecurity, we're not only concerned, although this is absolutely crucial, about insecurity caused by violence, we're also concerned about tsunamis, nuclear disasters, um, famines, <laughs> and those kinds of things as well. And thirdly, which I think is really important, is that in this globalized and interconnected world, we're talking about security in the world that's more like what we've come to think of as security at home. We think of security as home as being underpinned by a rule of law, by emergency services that come to our aid if there's a flood or a fires. And we think of external security as being based on our military capabilities and our ability to defend our countries from attack. What I'm really saying is that nowadays, external security is much more like internal security. You know, in a way, what we need in the world is to be able to maintain a rule of law. We need somehow global emergency forces that can respond to disasters, whether they're... Um, earthquakes and tsunamis or whether they're situations like in Libya. And I think what we need for that is a range of capabilities, policing, civilian capabilities, as well as military, because there are violent and difficult situations where you definitely need the military. But I think if these people are all going to work together, they will operate under very different principles that are more akin to law enforcement than war fighting. And that's the only way you're going to get them to work together, and one could talk more about that. I also think, and I thought I would add that, that it also requires a different kind of intelligence. Uh, the first sea lord talked about the unforeseen nature of the revolutions in Tunisia and Egypt, and as, you know, the chance somehow that this fruit seller set fire to himself. Yet if you, instead of, having, um, instead of having intelligence that's largely based on technology and identifying enemies, 
have human intelligence that ba is based on understanding societies, then maybe you might conclude that this kind of protest and revolution is long overdue, and you might have observed the growth of social networking, of new movements, and you might have been more able to predict it. Um, so what I think we need is a really big increase in our, what I would call human security capabilities. Um, and what I find very worrying is that I think we now face a very serious security gap. And what I mean by that is that there are large parts of the world that are deeply insecure for all the reasons I've mentioned. And yet, our security capabilities, which largely consist of military forces, are very inappropriate for addressing many of these risks. Conve I should say traditional war-fighting military uh, forces. And I think what's really dangerous is that this security gap is being filled by all kinds of private actors. Some of them are very benign, NGOs, some private security contractors, others are less benign, terrorists, warlords, pirates. But I think the very fact that you have a proliferation of private security actors is extremely dangerous. Now, I think we need, therefore, to increase what we spend on human security capabilities, and I think it's really difficult to do that while we remain committed to advanced conventional and nuclear uh, capabilities. Um, I think if you start thinking about why we need these, the argument is we need them for deterrence. And deterrence is, curiously enough, a form of soft power. It's not actually about using weapons, it's about sending signals. But I think the problem is that we don't know what signals we send when we, uh, when we say we're doing deterrence. Are we actually sending signals that we don't want a future war? Or are we sending signals that we think you're a potential enemy? <laughs> and my fear is that this stimulates military competition rather than necessarily preventing war. I don't take the view, although many people have attributed this to me, that interstate wars are necessarily over. I think they can all happen again. And I think a world war is the worst imaginable scenario, just as it was during the Cold War period. I don't think it's very likely at the moment, but if the tensions continue that we have seen, um, if we fail to solve the problems of governance at a global level, I could imagine in a decade or two a conflict with China, for example, and it's precisely for that that I think it's rather dangerous for us to go on relying on deterrence. I think quite the opposite, what we should be doing is trying to integrate countries like Russia and China into the international system, trying to think of ways that we can encourage democratization and openness, rather than suggesting we see them as a threat, which actually what it does is to strengthen the hardliners in those societies. It's the arguments that the people in the traditional ministries of defense need in order to be able to maintain their positions. 
So that's why I'm sceptical. So I'm sceptical both on cost grounds and on actually political military grounds. Finally, let me just say a few words about Libya. As I said, I think the goal of United Nations Security Council Resolution 1973 is, in a way, a human security goal. It's all about uh, protection of civilians. But I think it's very hard to have a human security goal if you don't also have human security means. And what I think is the risk of airstrikes um, is twofold. I think, first of all, it's extremely difficult, however precise you are, and especially when you have someone like Gaddafi who likes making human shields, um, to avoid civilian casualties. And it's very difficult to say your goal is the protection of civilians when you're actually risking civilian casualties. The second reason is more political. I think airstrikes are very spectacular and they have very polarizing effects. And they essentially, we're already seeing this in Tripoli, if BBC reports are to be um, believed, that they actually galvanize people in support of Gaddafi. They bring back memories of the 1986 airstrikes and the argument that, the, that this is Western imperialism, which then makes it much harder to resolve things in a peaceful way. What would have been a human security intervention? Well, I think a human security intervention would have been to declare Benghazi and the liberated areas UN protected areas. I think it would have been to have international peacekeepers, preferably from Arab and African countries on the ground as protection, not to attack, but for protection. Now, I know what everyone will say, well, we couldn't have done that in the time, we didn't have the capabilities, but that's precisely my point, that if indeed we had proper human security capabilities, if indeed we were thinking in human security terms, that kind of response would be much more possible, because the key thing in the end is that any solution to the, what's happening in Libya has got to be political and it's got to be peaceful. I think what the scenario we see now is the best scenario, I think, is that we freeze the conflict and um, we separate the two halves. My fear is that we might actually, I mean, maybe it would be very good. I mean, I'd love to see Gaddafi overthrown. But my fear is that if Gaddafi is overthrown forcefully, we will see a kind of Iraq situation in which Gaddafi, who has nowhere to go, becomes the backbone of a new insurgency. He's already released criminals from jail. Um, and, you know, Libya is a country like Iraq where insurgents can survive for a very long time through smuggling oil, through kidnapping, and through... The, and, and I think to have that kind of a conflict on the shores of the Mediterranean is really dangerous. And I also am afraid that sort of thing could spread. I mean, I'm really worried about what's happening in Bahrain. I'm really worried about what's happening in Yemen. And that just illustrates my point that we still have a very significant security gap, and it's desperately important that we start thinking about how to close it. Thank you. Well, thank you both very much, and it puts a very big range of issues on the table. So Mark, would you like to respond to Mary or should we take the issues in questions? Um, 
every possible to uh, just eat up the question time completely um, and uh, let me be quite clear in terms of Libya uh, this is an ongoing operation and any speculation by me uh, was entirely un un inappropriate and frankly uh, uh, the um, uh, questions on Libya will not be expansively answered um, <laughs> uh, uh, but um, uh, l l let me just respond to just two points one absolutely uh, alongside and many of the points you make uh, I, I, I don't think there's much between us we're, we're heading in the same, same direction um, uh, the one that I do absolutely support is the point you made about intelligence and the need for, for y y y I think your words were uh, going to less in less technical, more human-based input. Uh, and absolutely, this is, has been one of the strengths of this nation in the past, its ability to um, engage in, in many nations and get that sort of input um, uh, by, by virtue of, of, of our extensive history. Um, but even, even with human and events in the Maghreb and, and, and Levant, I, I don't think we would have predicted I think people would have come forward with concerns of unease and um, uh, concerns that um, uh, the stability of some of the uh, regimes that we're, we're talking about were questionable. But nobody, I think, would have come up with the answer to um, uh, how the uh, events have, have transpired. The other, other one where I do not take issue, but the fact of the matter is that your ideas about security forces um, uh, or current defence forces morphing into a security force type, type structure, which is in fact what I'm saying in terms of dual usage. Um, we do live in the real world, and, uh, and the, the results are that um, uh, the nations of the world, certain nations of, of, of the world, are building their, their uh, forces to an, an, an extent where the only way you deal with them in a security context, not even a defence context, is like with like. You can't you can't deal with a nation that's got fast jets unless you've got fast jets as well. Um, and whilst um, uh, we would like to see better and more flexible use of these instruments of power, uh, and if we could afford it, have parallel instruments of power alongside them. But if you've only got a limited budget, and most nations do only have a limited budget, then what my argument is, is to make flexible use of these assets as best you can to be able to deliver defence at the high end and security at the not quite so high end. 30 seconds, Mary, before we open it up. Well, it's just that I don't think that defence at the high end is, off, is not necessarily appropriate for security at the low end. And at the moment, I think the needs of security at the low end are much, much more urgent. Well, that creates clear markers for a discussion. <laughs> so let's take questions in, th in threes, if that's all right. Perhaps e each person could say who they are and then ask a brief question. We have a, you know, 40 minutes for questions, so if you don't get chosen immediately, we will come back to you. So let's just start over here. Yes? Would you take the mic, please, and then... Tell us who you are. Uh, my name is Martin Orbro. Um, I'm uh, at the Global Governance Centre. Um, so, Mark, you used the imagery of the networked world, and uh, uh, that's always appreciated, I think, in academic circles. But uh, the networked world is decentered, and wars, particularly the kind that the military fight, are centered, are they not? How do you secure unity of command? in the networked world where all military operations are cooperative, uh, 
uh, all military operations of any substance now uh, are international, uh, they're global. How do you secure unity of command? Thank you. We'll take two more on this round. There's someone with a hand up just behind you over there. We'll come across. Uh, thank you. Uh, Lee Willett from Rusi, um, just down the road. A question for Prof Calder. I think um, the First Lord knows mostly about what I think because um, I run the maritime stuff at Rusi. But for Prof Calder, um, to, try and, to try and pick on a current example of what, of, what, of what you're getting at about the way in which there should be things that bring us together to unite us for common purpose. The Arctic is an area that isn't much discussed in the UK. Uh, and it should, arguably, for climate change reasons, something that, 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 that is a, a uniting factor. But yet, when you have a no, large numbers of nation states, large numbers of nuclear powers, energy issues, the Chinese getting involved, etc., 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 there's an argument that it's a potential battleground of some sort, the nation state in the future. And yet, so here you have the tension between something that should be discussed at a common good level, but has a real risk in the long term of head-to-head -head nation state. Conflict. And I wonder if you had any thoughts on that one. Thank you. Let's just take one more question going along here. Um, yes, gentlemen, we'll come back to you in a moment. Um, to the Admiral, my name is Edward Longinotti and I'm a second year economic historian here at LSE. Um, with regard to the Royal Navy's ability to project soft and hard power, ultimately that's a function of the quality of its units, men and ships, that's undoubtedly very high, but also of their quantity, because whilst vessels can be multi-role, they can't yet be in two places at once. Um, the Royal Navy has effectively halved in size since the year 2000. Do you think a British government will ever tangibly reverse the trend and put more Royal Navy hulls in the water? Um, and very briefly to Professor Caldor, um, ultimately, forces designed to deal with soft power can only deal with soft power, whereas forces designed to deal with hard power with very little modification can also deal with soft power. And so ultimately, if you structure your armed forces around soft power, that's all you can deal with, which is something that you're ultimately going to get caught out with. Okay, that's three questions. Mark, do you want to start? Yes, um, Martin, thank you, Archie, for the unity of command um, point you make. Um, I, I mean, I'll answer that very um, easily by saying that's what we do when we're not fighting wars, to ensure we can deliver that unity of command with whoever we're likely to work alongside, be it a coalition or an alliance. Uh, building the trust that's necessary. Sorry, I like looking at my... Uh, but, uh, I can hardly see you through all this long. Um, uh, 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 by um, uh, networking in times uh, w w w when you can with, um, as I said, alliances and, uh, and coalitions training together, building that trust that's necessary to in, ensure appropriate both military and strategic understanding of, of what you're doing, work to ensure that your respective equipments can operate together, uh, make sure that you practice that unity of command as often as you possibly can, so that when you need to turn to it in terms of crisis, it's ready to go. Um, it's challenging at times, and you have an example of, uh, at the moment of pulling it together in the way that um, the politics of the day and the events of the crisis of the day require, but it's all built on fairly solid ground in terms of working in the past to un underpin it. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll take the second question. Please, yes, sir. Uh, just... uh, um, which is soft, hard power, uh, quality v quantity in terms of ships. Um, great question, absolutely great question. Uh, you can't have um, uh, one very, very capable ship can deliver what is required in the event of the high-end piece, 
Um, uh, and that's why we uh, are shaping some of the structure of the Navy to make sure we can deliver uh, at the high end and use it at the low end, but you can only have one ship in one place at one time, even, even though that capability of, of that ship might, in that particular location, uh, ac actually be able to uh, uh, provide a, an, an effect that ships in the past would have taken three or four of those types of ships. It is a quality v quantity argument. It's a resource arg argument. Uh, we are tasked by the government to certain requirements and certain scales of operation, and the, it's a very, very uh, analytical sum as to how many packages of effect you need to deliver those op operations. I'm an admiral, I want more ships. Um, and balancing what we might have to do at the high-end operational end with what we spend 95% of our doing at the not-so-operational end, fighting pirates, defending the, the Falklands, fighting um, uh, um, the um, uh, drug smugglers in the um, Car Caribbean, involved in what could very quickly become high-intensity type operations in the Gulf, require a mix of ships that, where I can't be tied with um, a number where they're only capable of being used in certain places. Yes, I want more ships. Uh, it's a question of balancing the resources that we've got as a nation. Thank you. Mary. Yeah, if, if I may, I'd like to say something about the question on unity of command because I think it's a really interesting question and I do think there's a huge difference now. And I was very struck um, when your colleague, Sir General Sir David Richards, talking about the difference between Afghanistan and Malaysia said the difference, one of the big differences is that when General Templar in Malaysia said, Malaya, said turn left, everybody turned left. When I say turn left, everybody says, are you sure you mean left? Um, do we really have to go left? And some people even turn right. And I think that's absolutely right, that just as, you know, there's a lot of academic literature about how the nature of politics has changed, how the nature of being the chief executive of the big corporation has changed. That chief executive prime minister has an ability to persuade, to present images, but can't any longer do that simple, straightforward, direct orders that you expected in the past. And one of the arguments that I've been making about human security is precisely that what you really need is not so much institutional coherence as conceptual coherence. That actually, however hard you try to get institutional coherence, you usually end up creating yet another layer of bureaucracy, <laughs> another coordinating organization. And what you really need is a shared narrative. That's the only way you can work in this networked world. And you know, my argument would be that human security can offer that. But it doesn't have to be that. But there needs to be, everybody needs to have a common story, if you like. On the Arctic and energy security, I mean, I'm extremely skeptical that traditional geopolitical approaches to energy security can ever bring you secure energy security. <laughs> I mean, the Arctic is rather different because it's not inhabited, but I just think when people say the war in this Libyan conflict is about oil or the war in Iraq is about oil, I, I think, is it really, you know? Um, this is a very bad way of getting access to oil, actually. Uh, surely it'd be just easier to do a deal with Gaddafi or to have done a deal with Saddam Hussein. And I think the problem with geopolitical approaches is precisely that they can be very counterproductive and that actually if you're really serious about energy security you have to think about energy diversification and you have to think about cooperation. But even more importantly in relation 
to the Arctic. I think we have a tendency to th put climate change, energy security, and contemporary conflicts, which are often caused by oil dependence, in, in completely separate boxes. And we really need to think about all these things together, and I, I don't think we do that nearly enough. So I think we need both diversifications, but we also need new approaches to human security in oil producing areas. Finally, on soft versus hard, I find this terminology really weird, actually, because as I said, I think what we call hard security, which is, I don't know, nuclear weapons, aircraft carriers, advanced aircraft are generally soft. They're about sending psychological signals. They're about communication. And actually, protecting civilians in conflict is jolly hard. It involves robust military forces. It involves risks that are a lot greater than actually if you're hitting somebody from the air. And um, so I, f I find the terminology very confusing because certainly what I'm talking about with human security is not soft security, it's genuine hard security. If what we mean is it's really, it's not just about communication, it's about doing stuff. Okay, let's take another three questions and uh, start with the gentleman over there. We'll work this way and then we'll come to the middle. I we'll get to you, yeah. Let's take three there and then we'll come to uh, Malcolm Chalmers from Rusi. Thanks for two really interesting presentations. Um, th th what hasn't been mentioned yet is Afghanistan. Uh, and uh, over the last decade or more, the most resource intensive, the most difficult military operations that our country has been involved in have been precisely these extended stabilization operations in Afghanistan, in Iraq, and indeed before that in the Balkans. And I suppose the question I wanted to pose to the panelists is, is that period an aberration or is it the new norm? And I, what I would read into Mary's comments, her specific comments on Libya, but also her her last comment about her definition of hard power, which I think is quite interesting variance on, on Joan Eyes, uh, is that um, that sort of extended stabilization operation, what she calls human security operation, of which uh, providing a ground force in Benghazi to create a safe haven there was a really good example, but one which I would say was ruled out by the Security Council resolution. That's one model of where we are and that would lead to one sort of way of structuring our armed forces. But a model, and indeed it's very traditional, we've been in Iraq and Afghanistan and all these places before for, for centuries. Uh, at the first Sea Lord's model, he, he emphasized globalization, what's new about the world today? And it seemed to me that's pointing in a rather different direction, which is against what we've been, very different from what we're doing the last decade. So is it an aberration or is it the, the new reality? Okay. Very interesting question, but could we try and keep the next round shorter? Um, questions should generally take the form that could be answered with a yes or a no. That would be perfect, but it's not necessary because I want to get lots of people in. Yes, why don't we take the lady here and then we'll come back to, to you. Um, I've got a question for Sir Mark. Yvonne Headington, editor of Defence News Analysis. Uh, you mentioned the uh, carrier uh, capability gap. How confident are you that that capability can actually be restored? in time. Um, I'm thinking in terms particularly of um, sort of pilot skills and so forth. Sorry, that last bit? Um, pilot skills. Oh, yeah. um, in other words, do you have to sustain in order to maintain? 
Thank you. The gentleman just behind you yeah, with the blue shirt. Yeah. Thank you. John Hislop, and I'm a physician, but uh, politics is where I'm taking you now. Uh, Mary, I'd be very interested to know what you think the future of NATO might be. That's North Atlantic. Sorry, we've got a lot of odd sounds coming through. I don't. Ah, you might just want. How's that? No, I think turn it off. Just, can hear fine. I think it's just better if you just speak loudly. Big questions. Okay, that's three. We'll come back to you in the middle in just a moment. Mary, can we take you first? If you could just have maybe two or three minutes each, and then we can get back to the audience. Well, Afghanistan, um, where I'm just back from, and actually I'm longing for an opportunity to talk about it, but I won't at length now. You can ask me more about it. But is it an aberration? I mean, I think insofar as we think, I think both Afghanistan and Iraq were far worse because of our use of conventional military force. In other words, I do see uh, a lot of protracted conflicts in the world, but I don't see them at being quite the level of intensity of Iraq and Afghanistan were it not for the fact that we were using conventional military force and actually this provoked the insurgency. It's rather like, you know, if you think about Northern Ireland, had we continued to use military force in Northern Ireland, I think the IRA would have been a much bigger problem than it actually became. And so in that sense, I do think they're aberrations, unless we're going to go on, unless we're going to do that sort of thing again in the future. But I do think the kind of protracted conflict we see in Congo, we might well see in Libya, that's very typical of what we're going to be seeing in the future. And it's going to get worse with the global economic crisis and climate change in my view. On the future of NATO and the special relationship, I'm very skeptical about the future of NATO. <laughs> and skeptical I'm about a lot. <laughs> yeah, I am. Because I'm skeptical about its ability to change, and I think that's what came out of the strategic concept. It's sort of very much institutionally caught in Cold War thinking. I, you know, I thought after the end of the Cold War, maybe if it at that point had included Russia as well as the East European countries, you know, there was a possibility of turning it into a different kind of security organization. I'm much more skeptical about that now. I still think it's incredibly important to debate <coughs> to involve the United States. I'm not suggesting that this is about the politics of the United States. I'm suggesting it's about the nature of the security concept. If I thought that NATO could adapt itself to be doing different security very differently, then I'd be strongly in favor of it. And at the moment, I'm actually very much engaged in trying to sort of bring these ideas to an American debate, because actually I think without the Americans on board for this kind of change in security capabilities, we're just never going to be able to do it. Um, let me have a go at all three. Um, uh, first one, uh, quickly about Afghanistan. Um, 
and whether it, it's a model for future engagement or not, which is really... I mean, this was part of the thinking that the uh, national um, security strategy investigated and why we came up with the adaptable positioning. I mean, you know this. Um, uh, were we going to be a responsive force at the end, first in, deal with the situation, get out? Uh, were we going to be the committed end of the spectrum, which is the Afghan-Iraq model where we commit to long-term stabilisation campaigns, or did we want a bit of both? Uh, certainly the lessons learnt out of um, Afghanistan and, and Iraq, which are counter in many respects to the lesson learnt in Sierra Leone, was that if you get engaged, you're going to have to do some tidying up afterwards. And that does require you to have some stabilisation aspect to whatever engagement or intervention that, that, that you're in. So the adaptable piece was very much the thinking of what we felt was the appropriate um, package of engagement that the UK should be uh, constructing its force structures around. Um, I take issue with um, your point about, not surprisingly, um, about sort of the use of conventional forces in Afghanistan shaped the security environment because uh, there was no other force to use. And, in, and, and indeed, uh, uh, in Afghanistan at the moment, it is, whether it's been shaped this way by t seven years, or uh, it is the ability of the security forces out there at the moment to achieve the security envelope under which those other levers of power managed to operate uh, is fundamental to the final solution to, 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 to the problem. Moving on to um, uh, carriers and challenge, I would not underestimate the challenge of delivering um, carrier strike in 10 years' time at all. But do it, we will. We're going to build these carriers. Um, we'll fit them with, with, with cats and traps. Um, we will um, be able to generate... Um, rotary wing aircraft, aircraft from them immediately they put to sea and are worked up. There's a time scale and, uh, associated with the delivery of the F-35 Lightning. Um, we're working today, I have pilots today training to be part of the structure which will um, deliver these fixed wing aircraft. They're working with the, our allies, both the Americans, we'll be working with, with the French uh, working, of course, alongside our colleagues in the Royal Air Force to ensure we have a joint force package able to deliver that first tranche of capability, which um, uh, will be 10 aircraft from this carrier in the sort of 2020 timeframe. I would not underestimate the challenge in any way, though, and in some respects, there's a cost envelope to it as well. Um, but um, with the help and assistance of our allies, we will be able, 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 able to achieve it. Um, uh, just to rush on to NATO, only because I've done three jobs in NATO, and I start every statement uh, with, if NATO didn't exist, somebody would want to invent it, and it's a very important organisation uh, to keep in existence. I then normally go on to say how challenging and demanding it is to get business done within the structure. But as a structure of 28 nations, going back to that very first question about our ability to work together, notwithstanding the realities of the challenges uh, that uh, were, were brought out uh, by, by Mary in terms of, of, of the politics of, of, of putting this together, the ability to work together militarily is underpinned by, by the organisation. Will it change? It'll take um, some time for it to change. But to change it, we, we should be... Um, keen on doing and doing it from within the organisation uh, seems to me to be the most appropriate place. Thank you very much. I'd like to go, yes, you've been waiting patiently. A gentleman with a tie in the middle. Is, I don't know whether we dare use that mic and then we'll come back. 
to you, yes. Thank you. David Kermesbeddy, King's College MA student and uh, Army officer. Um, going to the deter uh, nuclear deterrent, um, I perfectly understand the need for a nuclear deterrent because we can't foresee the future. However, why do we need a gold-plated solution which is based on the Cold War mutually assured destruction capable of wiping out multiple countries when everybody thinks that what we will need is a very precise a precision weapon uh, that needs potentially a very small yield weapons? Thank you very much. Clear question. And down to the front now. We'll be good. Uh, John McNally, a retired admiral. Uh, one question for each speaker, if I may. Um, Professor, I, 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 I share your concern that airstrikes have not uh, delivered the deposition of dictators in the past. Uh, we hope this will be different, but there's no experience doesn't show it will be. Uh, however, we, we have to deal with the world as it is, and uh, putting large-scale ground forces into Benghazi uh, would not have averted the Srebrenica times 10 because it couldn't have been done in time, and uh, air and maritime forces were perhaps the only response that could be delivered in time. Um, for Sir Mark, um, the uh, uh, unfolding implications of the fruit seller's suicide really seem to have blown a hole in what seems to me to have been one of the essential assumptions of SDSR, uh, which was that the UK could take a 10-year holiday, uh, Future Force 2020, from anything serious apart from Afghanistan. I mean, in the unlikely event of the government sharing some of this analysis, the very unlikely event, what would you like to see changed most? Thank you. The lady over there. Yes, you. Can you put it a bit, the mic closer to you? To right. You? Thank you. Well, I'm someone who grew up in the Middle East, and I'd like to, with respect, to bring to your attention probably the feeling on the street, which uh, at the moment feel that um, the West is cherry-picking those civilians they want to protect. They would raise the point, and very much uh, angrily, about what's going on in Gaza, for example. And that's been sort of a prison that's been going on for the last 30 years, occupied territories that are not resolved yet. And only the regime, which I want to talk about at the moment, has been at the bidding of the West, to do the West bidding. I mean, let's call spade a spade. It's about time we're all up sort of on to the reality of what the West has done in the Middle East. My suggestion would be, with respect as well, is um, why not go to colonized area again? I mean, they'll do your bidding. <laughs> Rather than have uh, sort of um, satellite states that do your bidding, why not just recolonize the whole area? And then you'll have everything you need. Okay, thank you. Okay, listen, there are many people who still want to ask questions, so I think we can get in one more round um, if, if our uh, uh, speakers are precise, as you are. Thank you. <laughs> Well, there's direction and guidance. Um, nuclear deterrence gold-plated. I would not rate our nuclear deterrent as gold-plated in any way whatsoever. In fact, it is the minimum credible, credible deterrent. It has been uh, sifted uh, now through a number of different processes to say exactly that. Um, the 2006 
white paper went through to find out what was the minimum <coughs> capability to have a credible deterrent against likely um, um, use of that deterrent to deter. Um, and um, uh, we're doing it with a minimum four submarines. No other nation but France does it with that limited number. In terms of warhead yield and such like, I wouldn't want to in this forum discuss the details of that, but it is, I can assure you, constantly scrutinised to make sure that in line with this government's policy of trying to move towards a nuclear-free world, we make sure that our balance within the current nuclear world is the minimum to try and foster reductions in other nations. Um, uh, John, you know, uh, ten-year holiday, re realities of SDSR and everything else. Um, uh, the, uh, the implications <coughs> of the last um, uh, few months does give a, a, a signal, uh, or maybe a signal, maybe an indicator, may not be, that um, uh, the uh, uncertainties that were built into the SDSR in terms of a 10-year time frame have come down the road a little faster than maybe we thought or what, what was thought at, at the time. One could take that view. Um, therefore, is a 10-year risk on certain aspects of the package uh, too much a risk? Well, you have to reassess that uh, in time and, uh, uh, and make decisions. Um, my, uh, my striving throughout the SDSR was one of a balanced force. I still believe that we're not yet in a position in, in this nation to have dependency to the point of not being able to utilise our maritime forces uh, under a white ensign and a white ensign alone. Whilst one would expect to be engaged in operations alongside our allies and in, in coalitions, there are aspects of world security that we, UK PLC, will be required to do on our own. And to do that, we need a balanced force. And we currently have, in the maritime, a balanced force. Stand fast, this one exception of the hiatus on, on, on carrier strike. Uh, uh, if I had a, a shopping list, and uh, the way to, to, um, to, to, to make this point publicly is to say I'd want to actually um, uh, reinforce that balance, that, 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 that balance force with uh, more redundancy. We're at the minimum in all of these areas of capability, and um, we've got to be very careful, therefore, about ensuring that uh, when we need to use them, we can use them, and there's not a lot of redundancy there. That's very political answer. Um, uh, I'm not quite sure how to tackle the third question. Um, um, I would go so far as to say, though, that uh, um, in terms of world security and issues of nations dealing with, with um, uh, aspects of insecurity uh, in a picky way, which I think was one of the point, po uh, points made, you have to deal with what you can. Uh, we, uh, the uh, international community as a whole needs to deal with what it can. The United Nations is a driver here, and uh, individual nations feeding the response of the United Nations to drive uh, their, their response seems to be the most appropriate way of dealing with these issues in the future. Okay, well, first on, on, on nuclear weapons. I mean, I just think there's an incredible disconnect. Uh, to me, it's not a matter of whether you have a gold-plated um, nuclear weapon or a precise nuclear weapon. I just think there's a disconnect between the way we think about nuclear weapons and the way we think about other, other things. If we're concerned about humanitarian issues, then we tend to think of contemporary wars in human rights terms, in humanitarian terms, but when it comes to nuclear weapons, we still see it in very old-fashioned 
sovereignty terms. And I think that's a huge problem. We live in a world where we trying, we banned landmines, we're trying to ban cluster munitions, and it's quite extraordinary to me that we, we haven't been able to ban nuclear weapons, and I could talk more about deterrence, but I'm trying to be brief. Um, on your question, of course, I mean, I think we faced a terrible dilemma, how to stop the forces in Benghazi, but I suppose my point was that if we had had capabilities available, if we'd had a human security mindset, which said the first thing we have to do is to think of the best way to protect civilians, not just use the means available, I think we would have been able to have a different response, and although we couldn't have got large numbers of troops in, we could have probably got enough to declare a UN safe haven. On the last question, I think that's a really serious question because there is a huge problem about the West's attitude to the Middle East. I mean, one of the things that made me very, very happy about the protests in Tunisia and Egypt <coughs> was that it seemed to me to disprove the Western theory of Arab exceptionalism. You know, why is it that uh, dictatorships have survived in the Middle East and not in other places. And the usual argument is, well, it's something to do with the Arabs, it's something to do with Islam, and therefore we should support dictatorships. But actually, I think the reason dictatorships have survived is a mixture of oil revenues and Western support. And it does seem to me that this is a sort of pivotal moment when we have to rethink how we relate to the Middle East. Finally, if I may, I'd like to just come back to you on Afghanistan because we should keep the argument going. I think I'm not against having troops in Afghanistan, a military presence at all. My problem is that I think there's right from the beginning been a confused set of objectives, that there's been a contradiction between the war on terror and providing security for Afghans. And actually, I think it's the continuation of the war on terror which focuses what's happening in Afghanistan on the Taliban and al-Qaeda rather than on the individual security of Afghans that has actually allowed the Taliban and al-Qaeda to, in fact, gain momentum. Um, you know, I, I, as I said, I just came back from Afghanistan and ordinary Afghans feel everybody is to blame, the warlords, the um, international forces as well as the Taliban and Al-Qaeda. They see them all in a, and, and they feel that the West is much too preoccupied with the Taliban and Al-Qaeda and not concerned enough about their security. Um, let me, sorry, I know we're under orders. No, I think you should have good for you to respond to that. We'll have one more round anyway. No, but he wants to come back to me on He should. You should. We're actually, you talk about terrorism and, and the focus on terrorism, when in fact it's a counterinsurgency uh, uh, campaign that, that, that we're dealing with. I, I didn't uh, use the word. The war on terror, yeah, I said, um, and now it's called the counterinsurgency war. And, and, and also, of course, over the seven years, the whole thing has morphed in a different way um, to uh, if we'd have a crystal ball and, and walking in the door in the first place, but I think we would have done things very differently to the way that we did initially, and um, but uh, you know hindsight's an, an exact science. Uh, I, I think everybody would agree that uh, uh, the constructive approach to dealing with the individual on the ground in the village in in Helmandshire uh, has proved to be absolutely the most effective way of ensuring that security um, uh, envelope. 
in, in, into which you can pour all the other um, um, uh, development pieces to try and underpin what ultimately will uh, be the security of, of those areas. But um, I, 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 you, we are focusing this uh, on, on uh, dealing with this insurgency that is a reality. And uh, any thought that um, uh, we're going to be able to engage with the Afghans to deliver what they want, the people on the, on the ground, in any other way than we are at the moment to provide that security, I think it's false. Well, I yes, I think you should. Because <laughs> I think what the difference between counterinsurgency and human security is the balance of goals. In the case of a counterinsurgency, the goal is defeating the insurgency and population security is seen as a means to an end. In the case of human security, the end is population security and dealing with the insurgency is seen as a means to the end of population security. And that difference matters actually enormously. It matters in terms of the narrative because what Afghans feel is the Americans are there to defeat their enemies, not to make them secure. Um, it matters in terms of who they regard as the problem because they see the problem not just as the insurgency but predatory warlords, the civilian casualties or the casualties that are caused as a result of Western offensives. And it matters in terms of rules of engagement. And this is my deep concern that, in a way, this has been too enemy-centric and not sufficiently population-centric. Yeah, I, I don't disagree at all about the point on the narrative. That's absolutely fundamental to getting this right. And I also agree that actually the security of the average Afghan is about whether um, uh, he can feel secure enough um, under the, um, the West security um, umbrella uh, than he will if the West lifts and shifts in three years, four years' time without ensuring the ability to maintain that security in which he or she is living. I absolutely see that. Um, um, so I'm, I'm, I'm not sure we're disagreeing over, time, over, over very, very much. It's just the mechanism by which we're currently trying to get to a position where the Afghan security envelope can be maintained by Afghans themselves. Well, this is such a good discussion, I'm tempted to say breakfast will be served in 10 hours and, and we should let it run. But uh, uh, yes, we'll take one more round. Gentlemen, who has been waiting patiently. Let's hold that point.
Okay, well, that was a good extra little point there. Um, if, we can, if we can keep the questions really short now, really short. Gentlemen at the front will be waiting with us. Just sit with us. Yes. Were you waiting for ask a question? Okay. If we can keep them really short now, we'll get two or three in. Yes. Thank you. I'm a student from Imperial College, and uh, I've got a pretty short question. In a globalized world, uh, is an international fast response even realistic? What I'm asking here is that looking at the recent developments in uh, Libya, with the UN dragging its feet, and even now NATO being reluctant to take over command from the US, what I'm really asking here is, what is your vision for the future to get a, global, a globalized response? Okay, very good. Gentleman behind you. Oh, yeah, so many. Uh, thank you. Brief. Okay. Uh, yes, my question is for the uh, first three, Lord. Um, my name is Brendan Sibb. I'm a third year law uh, school student. I'm currently writing my dissertation on UK maritime operations in the East of Syria and Paris. And so, to talk about something completely different to what most of the people have been talking about, I'd like to ask you about the prospects for future operations here in Paris and also how the UK, oh, sorry, the Royal Navy is. Okay, gentlemen at the front here. Yes, we'll, we'll come to you in a second. We're just going to take a quick round if you're really short. And then... Jeffrey Evans, I'm a shipbroker. I just would like to ask Professor Cald, or perhaps it's a question not similar to what we have. Would she like to take us a little bit forward into her brave new world? We'd love to hear a bit more about that. Would okay. Like the mechanisms to take us forward into your brave new world. Okay, lady, yes, hands there. If we're just having a sort of last round robin here. Yeah. Um, you've mentioned piracy a few times. Um, I think it's a good example here of how military capability at can work and how you can have human security needs at land. So I was wondering if you could comment on the complementarity. Tell us if you can how a naval cooperation at sea could be an example um, for cooperation, international Okay, one last question. Yes, lady, just further along, just pass the mic. I'm very sorry to those for those who haven't been able to ask a question. Uh, yeah. So my name is Dea Ginopsi, and I am an international member student. Uh, I'd like to know if uh, an improvement in communication between government and peripheral commercial actors could be a more peaceful and more appropriate way of preserving Russian troops. All right. If I could give our speakers just five minutes each, Mary, will you start? And then we'll give uh, the Admiral the last Gosh, word. There are so many questions. I mean, I do agree that actually thing, I think a lot more is happening than we're aware of, uh, in, both inside the military and in the experience we've gained uh, over the last two decades, since 1990, of these kinds of operations. I mean, I think it's highly significant that actually both the numbers of wars and the numbers of people killed in wars, despite Iraq and Afghanistan, has actually been declining. And I think part of that can be contributed, attributed to a learning process involving the UN and the European Union and other actors, um, learning how to do ceasefires, learning how to sustain them, learning how. But I think there's a long way to go. And I think both we're weak at a political level. <laughs> And I think we're also weak, and that was in, in terms, oh, that was another question from somebody, or was that from you, in civilian capabilities and non-military <coughs> capabilities. Uh, 
Um, my globalized response is very much what I was trying to say at the beginning. I think, and, and that relates to the other questions about who's going to be the agent of the brave new world and how are we going to communicate. I mean, it seems to me we're entering a brave new world very rapidly. And I think in a way, we as human beings are capable of trying to shape our world and need to take, uh, to grasp this moment. And I think a lot of it is going to come from people like those on the streets in Egypt and Libya. And a lot of it is going to come from us taking more seriously what ordinary people are saying and thinking. When we talk about human intelligence, it's not just having human beings on the ground. It's what you ask people. You know, do you ask them where the enemy is or do you ask them what's making you insecure? What are your needs? And it's also about really empowering people and engaging them and trying to relate much more to ordinary citizens in different parts of the world and thinking of ways in which we can address their problems instead of going on kind of the railways, the rail lines of the past and, and trying to be imaginative. And I think it's a huge task. I think we face a very dangerous moment in the world's history and a very big moment and we just desperately do need a globalized response and it's got to be constructed by people. It can't just be constructed from above. Thank you. Um, let me sort of grab a, f at a few of those questions, um, some easy, some quite difficult. Um, uh, the fast response piece, the globalized response, uh, this is a real challenge. Uh, I'm not, uh, you, you use the word skepticism a great deal, I'm just not, just not optimistic that, the, that the, uh, uh, the world, this brave new world you talk about, which may or may not be a feature of, of, of the future co uh, construct, whether we as humankind can, can reorder the world that is is in some respects um, a, a, a very cluttered uh, piece of paper all, already. If we aren't starting with a blank sheet of paper. We're actually engaged in the realities of what the world is today and humankind being a competitive um, uh, may, uh, personality maker. Um, it seems to me that my point about war interested in you um, uh, from, from uh, Leon Trotsky is important. Yeah. <laughs> And I mean, I would love to see a nuclear-free world. I would, I would love to see no need for armed forces across the world. But I just can't grasp the optimism to think we're going to go in that direction very, very quickly. We should seek, and this actually goes to the very last question about communications. Churchill's infamous, George uh, Orr is better than war, war. Of course, the more we can involve ourselves in dialogue and understanding and appreciation and help and trust and all the things that take us down that way must take us to a better world. I, you know, that I'm optimistic that that's what we can do. Um, but it's, I, just, I can't see the, the meeting of, of uh, the ability to craft that when we've, you've got the North Koreas of, 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 of this world and, and the difficulties of the Irans of this world, uh, a feature of a nation that can engage in a very bloody way very, very quickly. Um, uh, Navy east of Suez, uh, great, let me read your uh, dissertation. Um, Whilst, and it goes directly back to what I said, whilst the UK has interests in the Middle Eastern region where a huge amount of our energy supplies comes from, 
Uh, 30% of our gas will be going through the Straits of Hormozy in three years' time. Uh, then we will have a navy out there making sure that the free flow of, of uh, goods is, um, is conducted, because we need it. We can't live without it. It's, do you mind if I say one thing and you can answer me? But it's precisely because I'm worried about the Irans and the North Koreas that I want a different response. I simply don't see how our having military weapons will solve the problems of North Korea. North, the guys are too mad to deal with deterrence. It's actually terribly dangerous uh, to use military threats, and the same with Iran. <laughs> We've actually got to think of quite different ways of dealing with them than we did in the past. So it's precisely for those reasons. I take those very, very seriously, but I think we've got to think in a different way. So Mark, last, last word, or, or several words, actually. Well, uh, you don't have to be quick. Um, I just wanted to um, come back to the piracy point, then, oh, yeah. and then I'll finish on that. Um, because you raise an interesting um, issue with regard to cooperation in particular. Uh, because the effects of, uh, I've forgotten how many nations there are out there now, but something like 20 different nations, all involved in, in dealing with a symptom, not a cause, which is uh, disenfranchised Somali fishermen uh, finding that it's quite lucrative to go and pirate ships. Um, uh, uh, whereas the, the, the solution to the problem is to remove them from being disenfranchised and get them back, back, back to fishing, uh, which means you've got to deal with the Somali nation itself. Um, but whilst we're dealing with the symptom, uh, we are cooperating at an operational and tactical level very well. Nations, ships get together and operate in a, in a, in a very constructive and coordinated way. But funnily enough, at the more senior levels, uh, it's more challenging to get that level of, of cooperation understood. Uh, why is it that we have three different sets of task forces out there, one NATO-led, one European-led, and one coalition-led? Um, uh, and we have a, a number of different nations uh, who don't um, come under any of those task groups because uh, their mandate is different. Their view is, of course, to stop uh, piracy, um, but their view is that the command and control mechanisms that uh, they should come under are actually from the UN. Um, and so whilst we've got all of, the, of this cooperation and understanding at the, at the uh, dealing with the tactical issue of, of, of preventing piracy. We haven't got a common view on who should be in charge and uh, who should actually uh, uh, set the terms and uh, uh, conditions. A real realisation of this perfect world that we don't live in. Um, uh, I think I'll say that. All right, well, the test of a very good event is how few people leave as it's going on. And I can report, having watched this through many, many lectures in the past, that this is an exceptional event. Hardly anyone left. <laughs> a point of information. A I point clearly of, wasn't hard enough. <laughs> a point of information, and then a thank you. A point of information is, please, can you all remain seated whilst our speakers leave, before they leave, that is. Don't move. Let them leave. And secondly, of course, I wish to thank Sir Mark very much for a tour de force this evening. Uh, you know, a very impressive uh, uh, summary and engagement with the big strategic questions of our time. And I wish, of course, to thank our very own, that's the LSE's very own, Mary, for providing a very important critical counterpoint. And the result has been a pretty far-ranging discussion on a big range of issues. And the fact that you all stayed is, I think, testimony to the fact that it was so very engaging. So please join with me thanking our speakers. <laughs>